This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, you guys, here we go. This is the Kern River Fly Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Guy Jeans, podcasting directly from the Kern River Fly Shop in Kernville, California. On this podcast, we discuss everything outdoors. We talk about conservation, music, and life. This episode is brought to you by Sims Fishing Products, Fish It Well, Reddington Fly Rods, Find Your Water, Rio Lines Leaders and Tippets, Make the Connection, and Costa Sunglasses, whose frames are made from recycled nets to help protect our oceans. I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's do this! Right on, you guys. This is Guy. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Super stoked. I've got a special guest on the podcast today. And um, we'll get to uh, him. He's on standby. And I just want to thank everybody out there uh, for tuning into the podcast and uh, supporting the podcast. Uh, very appreciated. And again, thanks for all the beers coming into the shop from the, the third podcast. Um, we talked about that, but uh, we really appreciate all that. Um, but uh, let's get to our, our uh, first guest. His name is Glenn Ueda. And um, he is amazing. He's a very fishy dude. And I'm going to talk to you guys about him. Um, Glenn is a native of California, and he was introduced to surf fishing as a child by his dad, and they would take trips from Morro Bay to San Onofre to fish, and they would usually catch their own bait and would target everything from striped bass to barred surf perch to corbina. He discovered fly fishing while reading about it in Field and Stream magazine, and then he took some basic fly casting lessons from the world-famous Long Beach Casting Club when he was only 10 years old, and we're going to talk about that for sure. After almost five decades following his successful career as an architect, he was looking for new challenges, so he took all those cherished surf and freshwater lessons and built a very successful business called SoCal Flats Fishing Guide Service, where he teaches fly anglers the art of sight fishing in shallow surf for one of the world's most challenging species, the California Corbina, and we're going to talk about that for sure. He has said that after guiding many highly skilled anglers from all over the globe, that many of them agree that after a day of stocking Corbina, it's no wonder that they are called the ghost of the coast. And Glenn and I are gonna discuss that for sure. Um, he loves everything fishing, and he also enjoys sharing his passion of our sport 
and he fills his annual calendar with presentations and tying demonstrations to many of the fly fishing tours serving Southern California, including the wonderful Fisherman's Spot, the amazing Bob Marriott's Fly Fishing Store, and of course, Orvis Pasadena, um, all these located in Southern California. Those presentations, whether in person or in Zoom, um, the Ghost of the Coast, Sight Fishing for California Corbina, and Midnight Madness, the Hunt for Trophy Calico Bass have been received by virtually every fly fishing club from Santa Barbara all the way down to San Diego. Um, he has also done some writing and has collaborated on a number of featured articles for such notable publications as Fly Fisherman Magazine, Saltwater Sportsman, California Fly Fisher Magazine, and Western Outdoor News. He loves uh, sight fishing and he travels all over the world um, fishing in Baja, Mexico for rooster fish, Dorado and tuna, um, in Belize for permit, tarpon, and bonefish. Uh, Christmas Island for giant trevally, triggerfish, and milkfish. He's been to the Amazon fishing for peacock bass, wolffish, and arowana. In Argentina, golden dorado, pacu, and pirapita. He fly fishes 200 days annually. Man, that's awesome. Um, Glenn also enjoys the challenge of stocking finicky hard-fighting carp in metropolitan Los Angeles to massive Montana impoundments to the narrow canals of Japan. Developed specifically for pursuing these golden bones in all conditions, his extremely popular Locomoco Carfly has followers in virtually every state that contains carp, as well as throughout Asia, Europe, and Australia. And I can vouch for that. It's an awesome fly. I fish that fly, catch lots of carp on it. With a background in long-range big-game fishing, he also enjoys venturing well offshore, seeking hard-fighting pelagic and coastal species, all from his 20-foot Edgewater Center console boat, an immense aquatic resource. He fishes for California yellowtail, Pacific bonito, kelp bass, calico bass, um, Pacific barracuda, as well as seasonal visitors such as the yellowfin tuna and dorado, and they're all eager to slam a well-presented fly, and we're going to talk lots about that as well. Um, this is really impressive to me. He has landed 123 species on a fly to date, um, during his aforementioned international and domestic travels, he is, he is perhaps most proud of his IGFA fly rod world records for California Corbina on 4-pound, 12-pound, and 16-pound tippet. And all these Corbina were captured and released on his local beach. And I'm going to definitely talk about that. Glenn has been married to his wife, Mona, for 36 years and enjoys traveling to Japan to visit their son Randy and family spending time outdoors with their two dogs, Kai and Mac, and strolling the sand near their coastal home in Huntington Beach. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Glenn Uetta. Hey, how you guys doing today? Appreciate <laughs> you having me on, guys. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yes, man. Thanks for being here. I have so many questions, and I'm super stoked. And I you know, I'm, I'm really happy to get to know you via the podcast. Um, I wish I, you know, had uh, fished with you uh, before and that sort of thing. Maybe we will in the future. I, I would love that. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, you know, who did you, who did you learn to cast from at the Long Beach Casting Club when you were 10? God, you know, just a little, a, a quick story. My dad's business partner uh, Mr. Nakasuji, his cousin caught wind of the fact that I was looking for um, a way to learn fly casting, and guess what? He happened to be 
president of the Long Beach Casting Club. So uh, make a long story short, he had picked me up on a Tuesday night in April, and we'd show up there, and, you know, next thing I know, I've got this spongy Daiwa fly rod, and I'm uh, learning to roll cast and the old uh, pick up and lay down. So, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And uh, if anybody knows the club, the members there are among the most helpful. So we'd all circle around the pond, and, you know, whoever there that uh, uh, was there to help would, would do so. And it was just a great, great introduction to the sport of fly fishing. You know, I, I you know, have learned uh, from – some of the masters there as well, um, Joe Laboo, Jim Solomon, mm-hmm. Bob Mito, uh, John Vanderhoof, you know, all those guys oh, yeah. are world-class, yeah, world-class guy, um, fly casting instructors, and um, aren't we lucky to have them in Southern California, that's for sure. Um, oh, no doubt. Yeah, to, they're the best. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they are wonderful. They're wonderful casters, but more importantly, they're wonderful people and teachers, and and that's really, that, that's, that's the best thing about those guys. They're just awesome, awesome guys. You know, and the other thing, too, about most of those guys, um, they, they dedicate their time, and a lot of it is for free, you know, teaching people and stuff. You know, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, same with, you know, they have their uh, flight uh, time series, and, I, you know, it's just kind of an offshoot of the casting. But, yeah, those guys just give so generously of their time, and, so, you know, whenever, whenever they uh, create the opportunity, whether it's the double hall ball, et cetera, you know, we really try and give back and, and donate uh, to their causes as well. Great, great people. So after you learned how to fly cast, did it just kind of the bug kind of hit you and you just kind of got going from there and fishing little ponds and stuff like that? Or how'd that all well, go? Well, you know, growing up in Gardena, we were fortunate to have this, uh, uh, city park over, and I guess it would be Torrance. It was called the Laundra Park, and you know back then it was throwing a lot of you know, the old Garcia Mitchell 300 and a uh, hula popper and those things. So it was an easy transition to to uh, taking the fly rod over there and uh, uh, catching bluegill. And there's tons of bluegill back then, and you know quite a few crappie and as well as bass and. You know, it was funny because I think that's when I saw my first carp. And, at, you know, at age 10, I probably didn't realize I was looking at my <laughs> looking at my future. But, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there were some monsters. I think there still are some there. But uh, that's why I learned. And, you uh-huh. know, I think it was about three, four years later, it had built a, a nice old Fenwick fly rod, one of the very first blanks that came out, you know, the Green and Green Brothers there. And uh, caught my first bonita down at King Harbor because that was only a pedal away. So, yeah, really, really blessed to have such great resources close to home. So did you um, start fly fishing and then was that exclusive? Did you just exclusively fly fish or did you do other types of fishing as well as you were growing up? Or was it just were you just totally addicted to fly fishing or was it just kind of both? It, it was really just any kind of fishing. And I'm mm-hmm. honestly, I'm kind of like that still today where, you know, if I see yellowtail blowing outside my window here, I'll grab a, <laughs> I'll grab a jig stick uh, uh-huh. or, and throw a surface iron or, you know, I'll, I'll do it all. I just, I always feel like um, the more you can fish, the more it informs all of your other kinds of fishing, which, you know, and we'll talk about the local yeah. moco and so forth, but that's yeah. kind of where that grew from, you know, the idea of developing a little fly that swam like a swim bait 
Right. But no, we, you know, we, we grew up uh, doing mostly stir fishing. Um, didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so it was the one thing we could do on Sunday. And so, um, yeah, we'd fish, uh, we'd fish everywhere. So, I mean, we fished a lot around Lock and Cheetah. So it was great to see you oh, yeah. in the class there. Yeah, man. Uh, last weekend. Uh, I, you know, I can remember standing right there on those rocks and catching barred perch and, yeah. That's really that was that was my dad's thing. You know, he lived for the barred perch, and later on, you know, adventuring north to go get the stripers and uh-huh. rolling on down south to San Onofre, and we'd go catch the croaker. Nice. Did your dad get the fly fishing bug at all? You know what? He never did. You yeah. know, I tried to get him into it and all that, but yeah, it's just something he just never showed any interest in it. I mean, he fished big game, and I think it was his influence that got me into tuna fishing and yellowtail and and all the other pelagics. He, you know, fished marlin all the time off his buddy um, Bob's Chris Craft out of Long Beach. But, yeah, that fly rod, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why he didn't pick it up, because I think he would have been just outstanding at it. I mean, he's just a great fisherman. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, fishing with your dad, it just... Just going fishing, man, with him. Uh, and it must have been amazing because it was amazing with my dad, too. Yeah, and, there's great memories, right? I mean, just, yeah. you know, it's where it all began. And, you know, I look back uh, at all the old photos, and it's just, you know, I, I could see where I got the taking picture thing from, I can tell you that. I mean, every time he caught a good, <laughs> a good fish, he was snapping away. You know, it was a, a limit of logs, or it was a, you know, I was just looking at one the other day, and it was uh uh, his best barred perch ever. I think he waited in at Wiley's. It was a 214, and um, I mean, he couldn't talk enough about that thing. And you know, <laughs> spooky Bob with that high pitch voice. Yeah. Uh, he said Bob was even impressed. So you know, great times. Yeah. And, you know, I want to um, before we go on too. I want to. Um, I I don't know if you remember this, but um, the fisherman spot uh, down in Van Nuys was having a. Uh, fishing a fly fishing uh exposition show type thing and that's where they invite different guides and speakers to come down there and you and i just happened to be on the same day and you were really i I had never met you before but you came right up to me and you were hey man my name's glenn and and i'm like hey you know i knew who you were but i didn't i've never met you before and i i wanted to say i really appreciated that man I, i thought that was really cool no, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to meet everybody there. For me, you know, to be able to participate, to participate in such an event is just an honor. I mean, I consider myself a newbie to the sport. And like I said, I mean, a, conventional fishing was always my thing, but this fly fishing thing, I mean, every time I'm on the water or attending one of these events, and, you know, I mean, there was a connection there, buddy. I mean, there, yeah. you know, I, I'm big on, you know, energy exchange, and, you know, I could feel that, so I you know, it was great to finally meet you. And, uh, yeah, yeah we will fish. We're going to fish. Man. Okay, that's, cool. That's one of, right on. One of the things we're going to do. Yeah. Uh, there's, I definitely want to go, go fishing with you. Um, so yeah, I, I you know, in your uh, bio, you talk about being a, an architect and, um, you know, tell me a little bit about that. What did you, what did you design? And if you designed, um, what, what, what did you do all, all those years? Yeah. So, um, you know, out of high school, just kind of a quick history, out of high school, um, I'd take morning classes at the, back then we called them junior colleges, right? Yeah. So I was taking morning classes, 
uh, up till about 11 o'clock. So I could, and I had my rods in the car, so I could rush down there to Redondo and jump on the half day boat right after class. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do, but uh, my, with my mom's help, you know, she helped direct my uh, focus into a career in architecture and, you know, career B minus student. Finally, I'm getting A's and loving what I'm doing. So flash ahead five years later, graduate from Cal Poly Pomona and end up working at a firm in Rancho Cucamonga. Uh, and, uh, and they specialized in educational facilities, oh, awesome. you know, schools, everything from preschools to, you know, projects we did on Stanford. Uh, so I was really fortunate to uh, be there with a bunch of my friends and um, we when I was when I started, it took me two interviews, and I got smart for the second interview. I took out the earring and I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> Classic, right? Yeah, on. and so yeah, that was back in '84, and you know, within a year, I knew that's where I wanted to spend the rest of my career doing meaningful work. Um, because prior to that, out of school, I was doing office buildings and. You know, just these anonymous boxes for corporations and things, and it didn't move me emotionally. It, it did, you know, didn't move my soul. And so, yeah, got to doing fire stations and city halls, and uh, eventually ended up with some great clients, becoming an owner uh, of the place. And we had grown by then to almost 180 people with offices all over California. But yeah, it's funny to see. Uh, to see projects uh, that I actually helped lead. Uh, I mean, you drive over to Diamond Valley Reservoir and there's Heritage High School right there off the highway. And, you know, same with some high schools over in uh, Corona. Uh -huh. I love the high schools. I just love the, the bigger projects. They were just the most gratifying and working with some really dedicated instructors and people that were committed to youth and to education and student achievement. So, yeah, I did that for over 30 years. And, um, Retired in, uh, when was that, uh, end of 2015 and uh, started fishing full-time pretty much. <laughs> so it's like, um, well, obviously you're creative um, in designing, you know, actual schools and high schools and stuff. Um, it must be so cool to see that and then, you know, design it and then see it built. Is that is that just a cool thing? Yeah, it really is, you know. Yeah. I, you know, just thinking back to uh, my dad always gave us, you know, he taught us to work hard, but it was my mom that really had the, the artistic skills and the creative. She could sew, paint, sculpt, uh, you name it. I can remember being a kid and just creating things. We would just take, you know, pieces of wire and also just start twisting it into little sculptures and jewelry. And so I think at an early age that helped influence, um, my understanding of what was fun and to, to see things manifest themselves, you know, basically going from your mind and soul into your hands, whether it's rod wrapping or fly tying or designing buildings. Right. Uh, you know, I was, I was just destined, I think. For it sure. was my dharma, as they say. It was just my destiny to do some of those things. And again, I feel so blessed and so grateful to, to be able to, to take something that I was meant to do and, and, um, develop that into a career and uh, be able to share it and, you know, try to make a positive impact on, 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 on kids. Cause I think back to my own educational experience as a, I mean, don't hold it against me. I was a product of LA unified, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, the schools back then, they were designed like barracks and they yeah. didn't do anything to, to move you. It was just a bunch of rows of buildings, not right. unlike what you'd see in the military. Not that that's a bad thing, but the whole concept of if I can produce a good American, I can produce a good soldier, you know, that they didn't necessarily equate. So we took it in a different direction as a firm and really tried to, uh, every decision always answered back to, to, you know, is this the best thing for kids? Is this the best thing to help um, create student achievement? And uh, that was really our mantra. Yeah. Our, 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 uh, my junior high, which was called Balboa Junior High in Ventura, looked like a jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was bad. How funny. Yep, yep. So, yeah, it, it, times have changed. So, um, okay, so you retired. And then you started a new business, uh, SoCal Flats Fishing Guide Service. And how did you get inspired to do that? And um, how did that all go down? Well, so uh, having, having to interview constantly for every one of these school projects against, you know, usually 50 to 100 other architects, there was a, and then working with um, different professionals and so forth. There was always a lot of communication involved and so forth. And uh, I was having a fair amount of success with fly fishing for Corbina and uh, being able to share that with some of the local fly shops that I patronized and all of whom, you know, I've become close friends with. All, all the people that work there do such a great job. They said, why don't you start doing some of these seminars and always looking for new challenges? Uh, I said, oh, sure. So, you know, five years ago, uh, I can remember doing my very first Ghost of the Coast seminar. And after that, folks would walk up and they were asking, well, do you guide? And I said, uh -huh. <laughs> no, I, it's not something that at this moment I'm interested in. And then I gave it some thought and I, I said, you know, there's another challenge. Heck, I had a chance to fish with some of the most talented, amazing people uh, in the world, whether it's, you know, Elias Griffin or Solomon Murphy in the Bahamas to Bruce Leslie in, in uh, uh, Belize to Tanaki on Christmas Island and everybody else in between. They said, you know, there's a lot there that's been retained and maybe we want to go ahead and bring the application part to, to the theory part. If the theories store presentations and club presentations, Let's just go ahead and take this to the water. And, and that's really where it began. And, and uh, it's been fun. I, again, you know, you meet, as you know, you meet some wonderful people yes. out on the water from all facets of life. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's been going now for about four years. And uh, it's not something I've chosen to do full time. Uh, but, you know, I'll do 12, 15 trips a year. And, most of the people, for instance, this year are carried over from last year that couldn't get in. So the interest mm -hmm. is there. And again, it's fun. And if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. But that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Right on. You know, I, I follow you on Instagram and, um, you know, love your all your pictures. And I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody catch so many Corbina or carp for that matter, <laughs> which I want to talk to you about. That. Um, how, how, how did you, um, develop, like, is there some sp specific flies that you use for Corbina, um, that you, that you are, are your go-to that, you know, they're going to eat all the time, or is it, are you switching it up, um, color wise and, and that sort of thing with the Corbina? 
Yeah, that's a great, great question. And, you know, I still rely heavily on um, Paul Cronin, Surf and Merck, and it's still the, it's still the standard. And I think we all try different versions of it. Sure. Uh, there's kind of a, uh, a friend of mine, John Nakano, he developed one that's a little bit more like the profile of, I, I call it almost like a, an, a, a half of a peanut shape with a little bit more volume. Uh-huh. I tie a version similar to that. and um, But I also came up since I think Corbina, as you know, they get hit pretty quick to what you're tossing, especially later in the year. And so I have a little pattern I call uh, the bean counter. And it's got more triggers. It's got some legs, little swimmer legs on it, which uh, in looking at some of the swim baits as well as permit crabs where you're looking for a little bit more movement, Mm -hmm. that's where that came from. So those are the two primary flies. And, of course, you you don't ever leave home without your clousers, whether it's chartreuse and white or olive and white. Those are, you know, I mean, heck, they catch everything from bluegill to bluefin. So, yeah. you know, I always have my clousers in my box. Sure. But those are those are the primary flies. Uh, yeah. Colors, gray, I would say gray most of the time, and then pink in low light conditions. Mm-hmm. I also tie a version that is uh, mint green, mm-hmm. uh, which works well under cer- certain circumstances. Again, low light or heavily pressured fish, just giving them a different look. Mm-hmm. That one's worked out pretty well too. We past two years have uh, been testing out different shades of green, and and that one's worked well. Yeah, and and your structure on the beaches that you're at, um, where you're at, um, it, it you know, it's from just some of the pictures I've seen, I've never I've never fished down where you're at, but it, it looks like you have some great structure and some really skinny water. Basically, it looks like flats water. Yeah, yeah. we're. We're fortunate to have, um, a, a, it's a different kind of structure yeah. uh, versus, say, what's up in the Santa Monica Bay Area, which tends to be even more flat just because of the protection they get from Catalina and Palos Verdes and San Clemente. I'm a little bit more shielded from that soft swell, so ours tend to be a little bit more Channelized more rips, but there are flat areas too, which is, are my favorite. I love yeah. on a on a bright sunny day, looking for these carbinas skating in and out. Um, but yeah, as you know, it's all about the conditions. But we have to be adaptable. You know, we'll take whatever the day gives us. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, as you know, structure changes sometimes daily. Uh, so. It's a great way to get some exercise, get out there and, and hunt for these. But we've got we've got tremendous opportunities from you know your neck of the woods, more Ventura County, Santa Barbara, all the way down to San Diego. San Diego's got tremendous, tremendous fishing down there as well as I'm learning the past couple of years and kind of spreading my wings and going beyond LA and Orange County. And trying to hit, you know, up your way more, you know, whether it's Carpinteria and get yeah. back to Lock and Cheetah to my roof. Yeah. Down to San Diego, you know. There's you an know. army of guys down there that, that you know, they, they they get it done down there, Torrey Pines and so forth. So, yeah, there's, yeah, seems like there's a lot, a lot down there. Water, you know? <laughs> a lot of water to cover. Oh, for sure. So let's let's talk about... You know, the presentation to the Corbina for those folks that are kind of getting into 
possibly uh, fly fishing for Corbina. Um, could, would you mind talking about like when a Corbina is coming in and how you would approach um, that fish and like where you would cast in relation to that fish, um, you know, maybe coming in and going out with the, with the water, that sort of thing. Would you mind doing that? No. Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, that's a great, great question. And I think uh, before we could even touch on um, uh, the casting angles and so forth and yeah. the fish, a lot of it, and you, you touched on it a little bit there is, identifying a player, you know, what constitutes a Corbina that is actively feeding mm -hmm. and conservatively, I would say 75% of the Corbina that I see aren't feeding. And so uh, I, we don't even throw at those. And, and the reason being is um, there's a potential to burn uh, an inactive fish or one that's just sunning, trying to raise its metabolism and alerting it to our presence. So we're, I'm looking for a fish that is, the more it's facing perpendicular into the shoreline, the more committed it is to feeding. And what I mean by that, it's literally turning its back to safety. And so yeah. uh, inversely, if the fish is facing out towards ocean, uh, it's in flea mode. So I always say to, to my clients, I said, they're either feeding or they're fleeing, you know, in that situation. Uh, and if they're cruising into shore and they're, and I'm not good at math, but if they're kind of feeding in and they're sliding in uh, back and forth, that's an actively feeding fish. And you can see that. You can see their, the white of their mouth blinking. You can see them tail with their backs out of the water, which is the ultimate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but again, identifying the conditions and then identifying those fish that are quote players. And then once you see one that's, feeding, actively feeding, uh, then leading the fish properly. And, and generally, I, I like to get up ahead of the fish and try and intercept the fish at a casting angle versus mm -hmm. uh, casting perpendicular to the, the fish's path of travel where it won't see the fly for but a very small uh, moment. Mm -hmm. Try to get ahead and try to intercept the fish. So typically three feet past and three feet ahead and short, short, really short little strips mm -hmm. uh, to imitate a sand crab, you know, try, as they say, trying to be the crab or match the hatch, trying to capitalize on, on how that bait or how that food source actually moves. Nice. I love it. So what, um, what size rod do you like to use in the surf? That's, that's such a great question. And, yeah. um, I'm actually now, I'm using a five weight. I'm, just, I'm using an Orvis five weight, H3F five weight, and a, and a little Galvin grip five smooth waterproof drag and a, and a full sinking line. Uh -huh. uh, there's a number of them out there, and the one I'm using is a scientific angler's thing, but a yeah. five weight's all you need. I haven't hooked a Corbina yet that I didn't feel like, man, I can't land this thing on a five weight. So for the past four years, I've gone to a five weight and uh, I started off using a six and seven weight and uh -huh. I was pulling too many hooks. Really? Uh, you okay. Know, so all the flies I tie are on size six. So I was pulling a lot of hooks. And so I was looking for something with more give and uh, more accurate uh, accuracy. Uh -huh. Because most of the cast that you know are about, generally anywhere from gosh 20 to 50 feet so you don't really need nothing, anything more than 
that trusty five weight that you're using for trout, which is one of the nice things about this uh, kind of fishing. Anybody that's got the standard five weight trout outfit with the addition of a sinking line and nine foot of 10 pound fluorocarbon, you're in the game. It's, it's that simple. It doesn't take a huge a commitment cost-wise to get into this sport. Hey, so what kind of um, leader do you use and like how long is the leader and tip it and that sort of thing that you like to use? Yeah, I, I like to start off with a, a nine foot, 10 pound fluorocarbon leader. And the reason for that is, you know, with the full sinking line, I want my presentation to be on the bottom and I want that fly to be chugging sand like a little tractor just to kind of add to the illusion. Yeah. And so nine foot is good if it's really calm and I feel like that fast sinking line is crashing down hard and it's spooking fish. I've gone up to 15, 16 feet, which again, you're losing uh, depth control because now the longer leaders can catch more, yeah. can catch more wind uh, or uh, current rather and surge. So, um, yeah, I would say probably nine to 12 foot in general is about right. Okay. Awesome. Do you use a stripping basket when you're fishing for them? I do. Okay. I do. And for years I used one of the old plastic type, you know, there's mm-hmm. a bunch out there. I was using an enormous one, but I started using this one by E-Coastal, which is literally, it's like wearing nothing. It's, it's just all uh, super lightweight foam. And yeah, uh, for me, cool. it's just what I've always used, whether I'm on the bow fishing permit or uh, any other types of fishing. I just like the line control because I tend to step on the line or have it snag on. Me too. So, yeah, it, I, I'd like a stripping basket. It's not for everybody, you know, but uh, I prefer one. And I, 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 I always offer uh, a stripping basket to all, all of my clients and some, most will usually put one on or most actually own one because they've actually gone out and uh, uh, tried for these Corbina before. But I, I think it's an asset myself. Yeah. God, what a fish, huh? God. Yeah. So, so amazing. What? They really are, you know, and I, it's funny because uh, I've had a few people, uh, you know, Instagram, I'll use, I use this hashtag, worse than permit, and they just laugh, they laugh, they laugh until they come out and they actually try for one. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, then it's like the rude awakening. And, and I'll give you an example. My a close friend of mine, uh, Dr. Wade Yoshi, we fish the Bahamas uh, for years and years. And up off Andros, and it's all wade fishing, ankle to knee deep. It's the way bone fishing ought to be. Yeah. Um, so he decided that he's finally going to give this Corbina a try, and he's got almost 340 permits. Wow. And so he knows he knows how to fish. I mean, he's, yeah. he's damn good at it. And he, well, he tried last year for the first time, and he goes, Glenn, for the amount of fishing that I did, <laughs> I, I would have had over 100 permits based on the shots. He still managed 20, 20 Corbina in his first year, which tells you something, right? Sure. Um, but that, to me, really speaks to the challenge and the, and the gratification. You know, when you eventually are fortunate enough to fool one of these wonderful fish and, and land it and, and, you know, look into its little beady eyes and, you know, <laughs> it and then let it go. 
You bet. Uh, yeah, they're, we're, we're, we're very fortunate to have them literally in our backyard. But so what is your like ideal situation? Is it cloudy, sunny? Does it matter? I mean, is there a certain tide that you look for um, before you go on these guide trips? Um, uh, I mean, what, what is it that you're looking for? To, or are you just going when you can go? Kind of like me. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, optimally, if I had to pick yeah. my perfect day, and that also speaks to the days that I'll do my guiding on, I will not take somebody out just to take them out. Yeah. Uh, it's all, I always pick out the best tides for the year, and those are the ones I offer for the trips. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking for uh, a minus tide, uh, and, you know, we only get those twice as you know how the tides work, we only get those two weeks out of, out of a month. When I'm looking for a minus tide, say three or four o'clock in the morning, an incoming tide, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, so the structure can be identified. And then as the structure fills in about daylight, and it can be low light or it can be sunny, most of the time, you know how it is, we get the, we get the uh, coastal gray in the mornings. Yeah. Uh, rarely do we have sun, but it's nice when you do. And fish that incoming tide, wait for that structure to fill in. And usually between plus one and plus two is is optimum. When it gets to plus three, it gets blown out. They're there, but, you know, we can't feed them properly. Uh-huh. And uh, that's when the bait guys, you know, that's when they go to work. Yeah. Uh, that's good stuff. So let's talk about um, your world records for Corbina. And a couple of questions I had, like, so you have – um, three world records for uh, Corbina in four pound, twelve pound, and sixteen pound tippet. Right. So how how uh, or how much did the, the the four pound or four is it, yeah four pound tippet? Um, how much did was the fish? How much did the fish weigh? Yeah, you know I don't remember the exact weight, but interestingly enough, that was the biggest of the bunch, and they were all <laughs> four pound, right? Uh, I I. I and funny thing about that morning, all three came in a t- in a two day window. Wow! Uh, and it was yeah, the conditions were optimal. And as you know, Corbina, they're pretty delicate. I mean, as far as yeah. as hardy as they are, living in that impact zone, uh, where I caught them, it was like a lake with very slow moving water. So I said, you know, if there was, I had never tried fishing for. Uh, them for world records said if it's ever going to happen it's going to happen here where uh, you know you have to weigh it and then I have to revive it and, you know put it back in for a drink measure it put it back in for a drink so yeah I believe the I believe the four pound tippet record uh, was five I think five and a half so wow. it was a good fish it's it was a, a good solid fish man plus fish yeah um, I tried two pound and I broke, I, I couldn't even set the hook without breaking off. <laughs> um, even with the sharpest little gamakatsu hooks, I, I couldn't get it done. I broke off on a big one. But yeah, it all happened in a small window of time. And I just thought, you know, it's another one of those challenges. Let's give it a try. You know, let's, let's see what this world record thing was about. And so, so I cool. sent all the applications in and back then you had to, cut off a piece of your fly line, which kind of sucked. Yeah. Um, and you send in the tippet, and next thing you know, uh, you, know you, you get back these uh, these uh, little frameable certificates. 
Cool, man. It was fun. So how do you how do you weigh them? I mean, do you have a, a boga grip or something? Or I actually had a little sling because I don't think a boga belongs in the mouth of a corbina. Okay. You know, it, it just kind of distends the mouth and so forth. So I had come up with this little little sling thing uh, with a couple of sticks and like a little basket. And, you know, you send your boga in for certification. You just send everything in. And so they, they can uh, allow for the whatever weight. It, and I, you know, it weighed nothing. It was basically like a couple of chopsticks and <laughs> a little bag. And then you just, you, you had it kind of rigged to like a sling yep. and you put the fish in there yep. and then you could weigh it. That's cool, yep. man. It's kind of like a miniature version of what you see uh, um, the guys catching musky with. Yeah. The musky sling. Just kind of the same thing. And, uh, you know, cradle the fish versus, you know. Yeah. I get it. You know, what I think could potentially hurt the fish. And I, you know, who knows, maybe I was being overly sensitive, but I just thought it would be a, an appropriate way to do that. So you, know, you just send the whole package in and, you know, a month later they get back to you. It's either a yay or a nay. So do you have like, a, do you have to have like a witness there with you and helping you kind of a thing? You actually, you don't. And uh-huh. that was the, the thing. Yeah, that was the thing about it. As long as your, your photographs or your documentation is thorough, uh-huh. your measurements are, are all there. You know, I had actually ordered up one of their little um, kits. Back then, they would give you this little waterproof tape measure yeah. and so forth. So, you know, it's authentic. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, versus raiding the tool chest and whipping out the big Stanley. Uh yeah, so that's yeah, that's what you had to do, and uh, but again, the had the conditions not been optimum, I never would have even attempted it. I just have too much respect for those fish to, to you know, do what it would take to try and uh, you know do it in a normal, as we know, it surf environment where yeah. just you know pummeling waves and so forth. So I, yeah, I yeah, like it just worked out, and I've never tried since. Uh-huh. I like that, you know, um, because a lot of the times uh, folks have to kill the fish to, to weigh it and whatnot. And that's really, that's really amazing you did that, man. That's really cool. Yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea you could do that. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, it, it was, it was you know, it was a number of things, just the desire to maybe try it and uh-huh. um, uh, the opportunity to maintain the fish's well-being and watch it swim off and what could be better than that you see just oh my gosh so cool yeah to see three monster carbina swim off like that and uh that was that was that was special yeah absolutely okay so let's um let's switch over to another uh fun fish carp and yeah. um, oh my gosh, I, I've seen so many giant carp you've caught on your Instagram page. <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, and you know, I'm a I'm a carper too. You know, so I, I yeah. dig out. You know, the carp here in Lake Isabella. You know, my home carp here. You know, it's it's pretty. They're pretty amazing as well. But um, I, how did you get into fly fishing for carp? Tell me that story. So yeah, same thing. Just looking at social media and uh, looking for another kind. of my my thing, my jam, I guess, if you want to call it that, I love sight fishing. And, you know, not having the opportunity to truly fish Corbina the way I prefer to catch them, but maybe three, maybe four months out of the year on, a, on, a, on an exceptional season. Right. I was looking for something that offered the challenges, and I had heard about the L.A. River, and 
you know, how you get on the internet and you're sniffing around and next thing I know, I'm up there by... Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Griffith Park, and I'm like, what are all these things here? You know, I mean, my God, <laughs> some of them are giant. Yeah. And you go up there with, you know, all kinds of things. Somebody told me glow bugs, and another person told me, you know, sometimes they feed on a parachute atoms. And, you know, so you go up there with little crawfish patterns. And I even took some calico bass patterns. I, I had no idea. Yeah. And, uh, you know, caught a few. Uh-huh. Um, but I, it just nothing really just kind of worked and was able to fish all the different kinds of water conditions. That's I think more than anything. That's what is so striking about the park. You know, there whether it's in your backyard at Lake Isabella to still water to to fishing fast current to slow moving pools to you know riffles whatever. It's uh, they're a neat fish, but yeah, that was probably. I, I want to say probably like 2015, 2000, something like that. Yeah. So it's it's been a little while. So are are you finding? Because it sounds like you've been uh, you fly fish for carp uh, all over the place. And are you finding that the carp are very the common carp that you're catching? Are they very similar everywhere you go? Are they eating kind of the same things? Are you? We'll talk about your fly here in a second. But are you are you finding that? They're reacting the same and wherever you go? Yeah, I, I think for the most part, I think they they um, are very similar. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, in Japan, you know, my son, they had a garden right there near some old ancient fitted stone channels and canals there. And I, I see them down there, tail up, nose down, and they're budding. And I... Uh, or it's at you know the Blackfoot Reservoir, world famous Blackfoot Reservoir there in Idaho, where they have giant mares to, you know, our fish right here. Yeah, uh, I think they all are similar. And again, getting back to identifying players, as you know, those those sunning carp. You know, you might as well just go have a beer. <laughs> right. Um, 
right? I mean, those things just have no interest. So, yeah, they're, I think they, I mean, the food source might change, but I think the way they feed is very similar. Yeah. Um, and they require, you know, a lot of the same techniques that we use for uh, Corvina. Um, maybe you don't cast nearly as far, right? But a lot of the stealth, yes, and 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 uh, tackle preparation, making sure your knots are all, especially with characters, you know, they pull so hard, and so everything's going to be tested. So everything's got to be really good quality uh, knots and connections, and uh, everything's just got to be just right. Um, but I, I think, honestly, I think they're even at times more spooky than a Corbina. I mean, that first yeah. cast for a Corb's got to be, you know, it, it's your chances go down 50% every time you represent that fly. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, one you, know of the, you know, one of the neat things that, um, I, you know, fishing for carp in different places and stuff, um, you know, discovering, you know, that they, do eat on the surface, um, you know, over the years and, um, in different areas, you know, like Lake Henshaw down by San Diego, you know, they eat grasshoppers yeah. and I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, and then even on Isabella where I'm at, they'll eat, um, hoppers and ants and stuff like that on the surface as well. And I mean, yeah. what a fun fish to fish for. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. so what yeah. do you, what do you, um, uh, what, what kind of size rod do you use for them? Are you still using a five weight for them or are you up in it, up in it a little bit? Um, I, I'd switch back and forth. I mean, I'll use, if it's more of an open water situation, I'll use the five just because it's uh, just more fun. Sure. And, you know, deeper bend and so forth. But um, <laughs> yeah. around some of the areas where, you know, we have a lot more hazards in the water, be they rocks or shopping carts or trees or <laughs> right. anything. Uh, I'll go to a six weight. Six weight seems to be uh, a good all around um, uh, rod. And, you know, full floating line, just the standard way forward is all you need. Mm -hmm. um, you do need a pretty good drag, though, depending on where you are. The runs can be pretty long. Uh, and like with the Corbina, I, I'd like a fluorocarbon leader. And a stealth, you know, more stealth is better, unless. Uh, the condition you talked about where things are on top and then I'll fish a mono leader just because it's going to give you more buoyancy and I'll even grease the leader there with some mucilin or something just to help keep it in the zone longer versus dragging your fly down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, they're, they're fun and they, and they just grow to such enormous sizes, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable. So let's talk about your, your fly, the loco moco and, how that all went down and discovering how that works. And I mean, I, of course, you know, have, have uh, used it up here on Isabella. It works amazing. I've used it other places. Um, and if you wouldn't mind kind of talking about it a little bit, you know, where it came from, um, how you came up with that tail yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's very, yep. un very unique. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it's work. It's amazing because I get texts all the time from folks all over the place. And, you know, again, just this whole sport, everything we do is about giving back. So I've always tried to answer all the questions about how to assemble it and so forth. But uh, yeah. where that, that idea for the tail came from, it came from uh, – 
uh, Trevor Tanner, who's another Harper. I think Trevor now lives over in Santa Barbara and a good guy. We've corresponded a few times, but he's the one that uh, came up with the idea of using small punched out foam pieces for a tail. And even though uh, his use of them is quite different, uh -huh. uh, that's where that idea for those kinds of materials came from. But again, just kind of going back to my past, my uh, uh, past experiences with fishing uh, and then looking at the different carp situations, I didn't find a fly that allowed you the flexibility to tie it with different weights, whether it was no weight for fishing it on the surface, the bead chain eyes to as heavy as medium lead eyes or brass eyes, yeah. uh, and to change the length of the tail as you wanted either more vibration in cloudy water or uh, more subtle uh, in uh, clear water. I didn't see anything quite like that. And the only thing I could think of uh, from my past was fishing different lead heads. I mean, you might fish a four-inch plastic uh, swim bait for calico bass, and uh, half an ounce isn't going get to get the job done in 100 feet of water, so we'd go to an ounce and a half lead head. So it was all about depth control and also trying to uh, imitate some of the food sources that uh, I was encountering. And the one that I was... Uh, encountering a lot here in one of my local uh, flows were clams. I was crossing over and I, <laughs> oh. and I started walking across and I hear crunch, 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 and I reach down into the water and I pull up a big scoop of both clam shells and uh, um, live clams. And I'm stomping there in the middle. All of a sudden these carp start coming right up downstream below my feet because they could smell them. And I, I'm like, hold on a second, we're on to something here. And uh, so that's where the original idea uh, for the length of the tail and the kind of movement came from. Yeah. But then looking also at, you know, trying to create something leadhead-like is what led to the Locomoco and then all the different color variations. You know, there's an infinite amount of flexibility Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with, uh, whether it's the white and tan uh, with orange tip, that's my go-to color in most waters. I'll start with that. Uh -huh. uh, on a recent trip, we were going to black and yellow, but the water was kind of stained. And so, uh, you know, green and yellow works when they're up there gumming moss. We go to orange and brown when they're on crawfish. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, it, it's a fly that's really flexible. I've got a guy over there in uh, Utah, and he. He uses purple and tan, and he kills them. So who knows? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, a, is it's it, a fun fly. Yeah. It's more crafting, you know. Uh, uh, uh -huh. As, as a, 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 a friend of Dave Valadez would say, it's more uh, it's more like uh, man crafts than perhaps fly tying. But, you know, there's no rules <laughs> for fly tying. Yeah, I mean. You know, there's no rules. And so exactly, I, it, it's been fun, and it's been a successful pattern. And so to see everybody uh, catching fish on it, that's probably the most gratifying part for me. For sure. What, what do you think? I mean, why do you think that that, that pattern works so well? And I mean, I've seen, you know, when the, when the current is moving and that sort of thing, and then that tail just kind of stands up because of the foam and it moves around. And I mean, is that kind of a clam thing that the clam is coming up and has that kind of a deal going out or, I mean, what is it that you think makes that thing work so well? Is it just the different pattern on there? 
you know, I, I think it's the action, but also yeah. the fact that it stands up off the bottom and it's it's noticeable. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, for the most part, I think it's a pretty innocuous and unthreatening profile. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's nothing more unthreatening than a blow bug. Right. But um, just because it's, you know, just it is what it is. But yeah. I think with that little phone tail, uh, it, it looks enticing. It, it must, you know, aside from... Uh, the clam snorkel, I can't think of anything it directly resembles. And I've seen people yeah. add rubber legs and so forth to it and sure. additional more, you know, uh, hairy like dubbing and sculpting wool and all that. But yeah, I it just, it must imitate maybe a leech, you know, the black, the black ones. Sure. We were fishing. I can easily see it imitating a leech. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they just seem to go for it. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, man. I mean, uh, um, what we discovered up here on Isabella is that they like uh, kind of a very similar type of a fly, but, you know, the, the tail is uh, red, and they, they love that color red here. Okay. And uh, so we use that um, quite a bit here. But, you know, we'll, th- we'll throw the locomoco in there too, man, and we'll nail them with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not an, it's, yeah, it's not an end-all, obviously. You know, yeah. we, we all carry our other you know, tried and true patterns, whether little crawfish patterns or, um, you know, hopper patterns for up top and uh, those kinds of things. And you know, I'll even throw a, a little a leak conehead leech in the, in the box too, depending, uh, especially if I'm not, you know, and we can't always, as much as we hope for it, see our quarry. Yeah. So, you know, when we're fishing bubble trails, yep. <laughs> especially in some of the bigger Idaho and Montana waters, you know, a lot of times you're just fishing uh, sign you're not even seeing the fish per se so you have to be flexible and yeah uh, and uh, not be so hard-headed that you're going to make them try and eat what you're throwing but try and you know just try and get those additional bites yeah so let's talk about the la river for a second so yeah. though that water there you know moving through los angeles um, is kind of a slower current you know when it's there's not runoff of course and it, it's kind of a continuing current, but not that not that fast, right? Right. Yeah. Right. For the most part. Yeah. There's, it, there's faster it, and slower sections, but uh-huh. most of it's all fishable. And then there's, um, you know, um, structure. There's, there's from what I see and I've seen in pictures, I've never fished it, but it looks like there's rocks and, you know, like maybe even some riffles and, and, and whatnot as well. Is that correct? Yeah, there's... there's a number of different conditions there you know some mm-hmm. of it is uh it has boulder type rocks uh, out in the middle that create you know eddies and deeper pools and yeah. you know, along the edges there, there's more kind of this tooly looking type of plant that creates some undercuts and mm-hmm. then seasonally as it gets warmer you start having these weed beds kind of create these mats and they'll hang out under under the mats which is nice because it helps to position the fish mm-hmm. um, and then you have the slower kind of almost like frog water pools and they're in there too and the, those are probably the hardest ones to target because there's not a lot of current to help orient the fish right um, but uh, yeah and, and then you end up with these normal kind of these little channel areas as well little side channels and but there's yeah, there's a lot of different conditions, which again speaks to the need for having flies with different uh, weight uh, 
and keeping your fly for the most part, unless you see it getting on top. And I always say, you know, look at the mouth, look at the mouth position. Mm -hmm. That fly wants to be either level with the, the carp's eyes or down. Same with the corbina. You know, they, they've got the inferior mouth. So yeah. try and always keep your fly um, presentation where it's expecting to find food. What I've been hearing also is that uh, they're doing a lot of uh, restoration um, near that. Uh, I think it's the Atwat Village or something like that. One of my yeah. friend, one of my friends owns a restaurant there, and they're talking oh. about. Um, I guess they're doing some restoration there and making it nice down there. Is that right? Yeah, I I, I haven't been following it too closely. Uh -huh. I get a couple of emails from different organizations, but yeah, there's been a it's been for it's been years. I, I can tell you that because it was one of the perennial projects when I was at Cal Poly Pomona to turn the LA River uh, into this scenic park, almost uh, French or Euro European like, where it would become not only uh, picturesque, but it would also have some sporting elements in it, from yeah. kayaking, canoeing to whatever. But it's it's been in the works forever, and uh -huh. I think the current mayor uh, he's probably been more uh, actively involved with funding some of that development. But it's been ongoing for quite a while, and uh, uh, I mean, recently there in Atwater, there's been a, a couple of uh, bridges added. Uh, I know there's a horse ranch there right below Atwater Park. Not a ranch, but a place where people uh, keep their horses a stable. Uh -huh. And uh, I think they help to fund some of the improvements. And uh, as much as I think that's great, it's also, of course, uh, the degradation to the habitat for the park. It's not been good. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, it's not been good because the foundation work, the the uh, the displacement of natural habitat with these huge concrete pylons. Uh -huh. I'm sure everything will grow back. It's all cyclic. Sure. Uh, but I know it's been, it's not quite the place it was uh, the way it was before some of those structural elements were built. But there's still a lot of carp there. That's the amazing thing about them. You know, they, they're resilient. And, and uh, folks are always, I'm always surprised at how, how adaptable they are. You know? We always joke, um, you know, if something catastrophic would ever happen, I think there'd be three animals left on this planet. <laughs> they'd be coyotes, cockroaches, and carp. Yeah. Right, for sure. <laughs> I, mean, those are, I think that I think that's uh, that really just kind of speaks to how amazing they are, and they truly are. I mean, they they they're 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 a great fish, and and I think uh, as you know, it's great to see the rest of the fly fishing world starting to recognize how yes. wonderful of a, uh, uh, and challenging they are as a fly rod target, as a species. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to switch gears now to saltwater, um, yeah. if you don't mind. And, um, you know, I, I see pictures, of course, of you with these um, monster calico bass, um, and, um, how, you know, how did you get into fly fishing for, you know, calico bass and sand bass and other species, you know, uh, inshore species? Um, and uh, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, well so calico bass, uh, my, the first calico bass I ever caught, period, was back in those same King Harbor days back when you know, we talked about uh, fishing for bonita and so forth. And that was 
first time I ever caught a calico bass on the fly. It was probably, geez, it had to be 1972, maybe 73, and it was by the Redondo Breakwater. And again, you know, I didn't, I didn't think, I just didn't think much of it. I thought it was a cool-looking little fish and so forth. It was too small to keep because it was only about an eight-incher, but yeah. it was a pretty little fish. And um, you know, as time went by, we started to fish the Long Beach breakwater. Uh, yeah. Back in high school, my dad had purchased a little aluminum boat, a little Valco. I think it was uh, Lake Peru had lost its lease because there was a boating accident. So we went there and paid 75 bucks for one that had been <laughs> driven up onto the shore and got it repaired. And so my high school buddies and I, we'd go fish Long Beach Harbor and, uh, and we fished them with plastics back then. You know, we used Daiwa Millionaires and Scampies and Mr. Twisters. And, uh, you know, flash ahead now to probably, it's probably been 15 years now that I've been fly fishing the calicos, probably more seriously in about the last five. But, uh, yeah, all those same uh, areas, the same techniques with regard to the contacting structure and gets back to depth control again, uh-huh. use of color, profile, vibration, silhouette, all those things. Um, all still apply. Now, none of what we're doing today or even two nights ago when we were out on Monday night, <laughs> none of that is any different than when we were fishing plastics, uh, jigs, and so forth back in the 70s and 80s. Um, but, yeah, I've become addicted to it, especially the night bite. Yeah. And you guys go, like, you guys fish all night, and then, I mean, yeah, is, is that what you're doing? Yeah, we you know, we like to get out there um out in the gray, you know, we would go grab a bite somewhere and get out there at, at dusk and then we'll fish well into the darkness, um, you know, hitting different spots. Uh, and just gear-wise, we're using 10 weights. And folks say, well, you know, why would you use a 10 weight for a four-pound fish? Well, you know, the, the neighborhood is where they live is just, hazardous. I mean, it's just jagged rock and it's kelp and I've talked to divers and, you know, they said they, they go around in there and they see these, the bigger calico bass are all backed into these caves and they're facing out. And so, you know, you've got, you've got to put the wood to them. You get that tick or that, that rod jarring strike and you got to, you got to, you got to power them out and get a pull hard. So we're using 10 weights on the fast sinking lines and 30 pound straight fluorocarbon, uh, the hard fluorocarbon, you don't want that soft stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, these big sculpin flies are what we're using most of the time. And are, uh, are, what size, um, I guess, what weight lines are you using? Are they, are they like 400, um, 400 grain lines? Yeah, or? yeah, 400 grain fast thinking type six. Yeah, 30 foot of that with uh, an intermediate. You don't need to go any uh, faster sinking than that. You know, uh-huh. there's some lines now to where they have, you know, whatever. The first 30 feet is this, and then 20. You don't need all that. Just a straight 30 foot fast sinking head will get you down into the, the depths. Uh-huh. Uh, it's only about probably 50 feet. 100 feet out away from the rocks, but we'll, uh, we'll fish that entire water column. But the key, again, is to just kind of keep that fly in the zone where they're expecting to find food and 
you know, if you can get out there on a, a night where you've got really good surge, you know, good good swell, and uh, we had a had a little bit of push Monday night, but uh, right now we're kind of in that weird time of year where the northern storms are all pretty much gone, and now we're starting to look for tropical pushes up from Mexico. So if you can get out there on a good night with pushing, you know, four to six feet at 10 seconds, you're going to get, you're going to definitely get some action. So they like that moving around stuff. They like that current moving around and bait moving around. Yeah, and... I think it dislodges food and it, mm-hmm. it makes, it, it activates them. You yeah. know, I, I think it, it's just from experience. It's what they like, but uh, yeah, that, most of my calico bass fishing is, and I fished, you know, the Marina del Rey rocks, San Diego Bay, you know, Zuniga Jetty. I've done a little bit of it on the backside of Catalina, but again, one of these backyard resources right there. The United States' most busy harbor also has some of its best fishing for calico bass. And, um, and they're just, again, they're remarkable fish. To think that a 12-inch bass which in fresh water would be a yearling, yeah. would be five to seven years old in the ocean. That's amazing to me. And to think that the trophies were, were sometimes able to land the five to eight pounders, those are like as old as your, your grandpa, you know? <laughs> they're that old, huh? They're really that old. Yeah, they're super slow growing. Uh-huh. Uh, and so when people talk about, well, don't you want to set a world record? I'm like, I ain't killing my grandpa. You know, that's the yeah. very fish. That's the very fish you want to create uh, that has the lineage and the longevity. That's the one you want to reproduce and yeah. make babies. So, you know, I, I'm like, there's no way. I don't, you know, I don't care how big it is. It's going back. And, yeah. Um, and my mom would always say that because that's her, that was her favorite eating fish. And I said, she goes, I don't even want to hear about your latest trip because <laughs> all I'm going to hear about is how you let go. I had no idea that they, they were so slow growing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They, they truly are. Um, but, uh, yeah. And you know, there's also the sand bass and you know, the sand bass is, uh, they're, they're a gray cousin. They don't get the respect that they do, but they're an amazing fish too. And, you know, we catch those out a little bit away from the, the rocks uh, yeah. Not that we're fishing them any differently, unless we're fishing more vertical, yeah, uh, on wrecks and things in the harbor. But they're boy, they pull just as hard, and to me, they're just as beautiful. You know, they they're a little different shape, but they're they're a great fish as well, and uh, you know, definitely worth targeting. Yeah, they pull they pull hard too. Yeah, uh, they're great. I love catching those things. So let's let's talk about um, technique and, and and flies for a second for calicos. Um, you know, like let's say we're fishing a, a break wall, and the break walls are are kind of, um, I guess you could say they're kind of shaped like a pyramid. Would you say they kind of, they kind yeah, of, did, they kind of go up and I then they kind of, you know, pyramid down underneath the water. Is that correct? Yeah, they're actually the best description I ever read was they're like a prism laid on one side, uh-huh. this long play-doh like triangular extrusion, and you know, and it's eight miles long. Uh, from the Cabrillo Lighthouse all the way to the Long Beach end where the bait receiver is. So you got eight miles of this. But uh, as we know, um, you know, nature being what it is and construction techniques being what it is, 
all the all the rock is from uh, Catalina, and it was built over the course of uh, a few years. And you know, a large part of it was to help keep some of my invading relatives from coming into LA Harbor and, and creating havoc. And, <laughs> and so that's why you have these these narrow openings so they can mine uh, those areas and supervise them to keep uh, submarines from coming through. So a little bit of history there. Oh, wow. But yeah, so you've got this very irregular surface. Well, over the course of the the uh, construction, as well as because of natural events, a lot of the, that rock gets dislodged, and it creates little mounds on the inside. And mm. those are the kinds of areas that, with our sonar and from experience, those are the areas that we're looking to uh, consolidate our efforts uh, on uh, because they you know, they create little current breaks, they create a little bit more habitat, mm. perhaps a little bit more kelp is more likely to grow there. Um, but regardless, it's all about depth control. So yeah. the flies we use most of the time, uh, at least I do, uh, are uh, using a 2.0, like a Gamakatsu B10S, nice big uh, hook shark. It's fine wire, but really strong. I've yet to straighten one out, even on a snag. Um, uh, and then using the large, the largest size Lyman uh, sculpin head. And we go a step further uh, and powder coat them. Oh wow! So there, you can take a take a heat gun uh, and heat that up, and the same powder coating you can, that people use for lead heads and other types of things, spinner bodies, whatever else, you can uh, use. Uh, we like, my favorite colors are orange, the bright orange, uh, red, and once in a while using like a glow color. And I honestly haven't noticed any difference using glow, but those mm -hmm. are my favorites. Uh, and then using a big rabbit strip tail about three inches long and uh, some SF blend. I mean, name your favorite synthetic. You can use EP, SF blend. Uh, there's a bunch out there. I can't even think of them right now. And then some legs, yeah, uh, some silly legs. That again, it's all about vibration. It's all about silhouette and footprint. Yeah, and uh, you know, imitating crabs, uh, bait fish, and uh, as well as baby octopus. A lot of people don't know that ah. you know, certain times of the year they get these massive. Uh, hatches of baby octopus and uh, calicos and sandbats love. Interesting. So on the fly, on the tail, is that tail is pretty important? You know, when it's falling, is that correct? It's got to, it's got to be, uh, it's got to be moving. Um, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think so. I mean, there's times where I don't think it makes a bit of difference, but uh, I think having, you know, I like a big magnum rabbit strip tail. Uh, and if they sold a wider version, I'd probably get that as well. But I've seen every different versions using uh, fly skins, uh, synthetic, you know, the plastic, and people cutting it into kind of a, a V, kind of like the old pork rind days, uh, where you get a little bit more of a planing type of an undulation uh, to guys using curly tails. Pat Cohen makes some really, Cohen's creatures make some really cool curl tails. Uh, Pat Dunlap up north. He's got some different tails, but yeah, vibration uh, is is really important. But I think silhouette also. I I think these calicos before they even see the fly, I think they feel it with their lateral line. 
Oh, okay. Um, and then once they get closer, then they begin to see some of the detail. They begin to see color, and then they they um, they hopefully climb on it. Yeah. Gosh, man, what a fun fish! What, what a cool area you live in, man. And you have all this, all these different species and places you can go. I mean, no wonder you're fishing every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. We're, we're very, very lucky in that sense. Yeah. And you know, you know, both being California residents, you know, folks ask us here too. I meet people out of state all the time on the beaches, and they talk about seasons. And yeah. my sister lives in New York, and Oh my God, I don't know how she deals with it, but uh, you know, folks ask, what seasons do you have here? And I always answer, we have one season. They go, what's that? I say, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just it's very temperate and, you know, heck, 50 degrees is cold for us. Right. So, you know, what I hear all the time in the shop um, is people coming up here to Kernville. They, 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 I guess, where are you from? And, Oh, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, there's not really any anywhere to go fly fishing in Los Angeles. So, you know, we have to go up to the Sierra and this and that. And I'm like, you know, of course I know um, better than that. And I'm like, oh, you got all kinds of fishing all around you. And they're, most of them yeah. are like, where, where? And I'm like, oh, you got the beach. You got carp in the LA River. You got, you know, offshore stuff, inshore stuff. And uh, they're oh I didn't I didn't know you could do that <laughs> I hear that constantly so let's let's yeah. talk let's talk about um, uh, one more thing and that is the offshore stuff you know um, I know you take your boat out there to um, the Catalina area and fish out off there and you know what are you mostly fishing for out there uh, most of the time and and most of that fishing for us is done between. June and maybe uh, November, uh, and it, a lot of it's Bonita fishing. You oh, know, okay. the good old Bonita was the first pelagic that uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to catch, whether it was on a fly rod or a, or a crocodile or a, you know, spoofer or, or a crappie jig. You know, it was it's always going to be one of my favorite fish, and, and everybody wants a yellowtail, but. I got to tell you, man, a, a good bonita, it, it'll put a smile on my face every day of the year. I, mean, <laughs> I, I love those fish. They're, you know, as they say, they're California's, uh, it's God's gift to California saltwater fishing. It's a really, <laughs> you know, they, with, with the anchovies back now uh, in force, uh, that, that's the reason they're back. It's all about food source. And so, you know, Catalina's great. And, uh, I mean, we've caught it. We catch them off the coast here, too. But mm -hmm. not as frequently as Catalina. They they're there year round now. There's a resident population. Wow. And uh, yeah, and it 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 increases uh, at certain times of the year, uh, especially during the summer, uh, which also means there's a lot more sea lions. But yeah. <laughs> but that's a whole that's a whole other show. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, and then we fish for the yellowtail. You know, that'll always be kind of the the. Uh, I don't know, man. It's kind of like the gold medal for Catalina. At least for yeah. me, it is. As a small boater, sure. We'll we'll catch yellowtail a lot of the same areas, um, but they're they're great. You know, they every year we we hook big yellowtail that we can't stop, mm -hmm. and so that's what keeps you going back. Yeah, it's right. fun, and it's not that far to go. I know how. Pick our day. How long? How long of a boat ride is it out there to from where you're at? You know, we it usually takes about an hour and twenty minutes or so. 
a little further if we're running to the west end. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, and we'll fish both sides. Um, you know, the back side gets much less pressure, uh, and, but we'll go where the fish are. Sure. You know? So have you, have you ever uh, been out there and then gotten trapped and you know what I'm saying? Like the swells came up so big, you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know if we can make it back to, to the harbor kind of a situation. You know, haven't, haven't had that happen, knock on the wood. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things uh, that I would encourage every uh, boat owner to have is, uh, you know, vessel assist. Sure. And it, it's the boat owner's auto club, and I, I'm sure that's what the commercial even says. Yeah. But, um, yeah, to have that, just knowing you have the ability to um, be towed in, it might take them three hours to come out from Long Beach to get you. Yeah. But to know that there's somebody there to uh, come, uh, if you had a mechanical catastrophic failure, to come get you, that's that's peace of mind. Sure. Um, I mean, I've had a couple of instances where, you know, one of them where the, um, you know, my fuel gauge, fuel sending unit was uh, was off, and, you know, and I didn't bother to, I don't know, I don't know if it's a maintenance issue or not, but I've had a couple of instances, but, Never to where I felt like I was like in serious danger. Um, so you know they'll yeah. come out and they'll bring in a couple gallons of gas and you know they'll get you to the next stop, so to speak. But but more importantly, it's rare that the weather ever comes up uh, the way um, you, know, you might think. Yeah. So we're very selective. My boat's only twenty foot long. Right. We're really seaworthy, uh, but at the same time. Uh, you know, your, bo- your body can only handle so much pounding as well. That's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> at, at 62, I, you know, I, I don't have it in me anymore. It takes two days to recover after, a, you know, after a rough ride back. Yeah. Um, but we try and pick our windows. So we're always looking for uh, something three foot, uh, three foot 12 at a minimum of 10 seconds. Anything longer than that is, is better. It'll be flat enough to run. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, we, and the wind just as well, you know, we're always cognizant of the wind. Uh, I just won't go out if it's really windy, no matter how much I love to finish it. It's not going to put, uh, my passengers and myself at risk. Okay, cool. You know, um, uh, we've been talking for a while, but I have one more question and, um, I, you know, with my, my show, I always ask people, you know, what music they're listening to these days, if anything, you know, or if it's, if it's not anything, you know, it's not anything, but I always like to find out, you know, cause I'm a musician and I, and I love all kinds of music, every genre basically. But, um, have you, have you been listening to anything, um, lately, like, uh, that you enjoy? You know, I, I, my, my the most fond memories I have in terms of a time when I was really listening to a lot of music was the eighties. And I love the talking. I love the talking. Heads. Oh, right on. Right yeah, on. I love Me the too. Talking heads. And uh, you know, I know speaking in tongues got a lot of airtime. Yeah. Cause you can, tap, you can tap your toe to it. Yeah. But, uh, I really love remain in light. Listen to, you know, the great curve and all those, all the poly rhythms. I love that's cool. Burns genius. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so I really, I'm really enjoying listening to, uh, to that, and not to knock speaking in tongues, but and that's a great album as well. But I even caught myself 
listening to David Byrne on a, kind of a solo mission. There's some mm-hmm. YouTube videos where he's down in Austin, Texas, and he's mm-hmm. got a, a different band with him. And I saw that, too. Some, yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's cool, well, man. I loved it. Yeah. It was great. And, you know, just once in a lifetime and, you know, life during wartime, all those. I mean, I, I'm a big Talking Heads fan, and right there behind them, I, I've always loved Depeche Mode. I've always, oh, cool. Yeah, I've always loved that post uh, pop synth type sound. And, uh-huh. uh, so, but then you know, once in a while, I'll grab in my iPod, believe it or not, it's still working. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll grab a, you know, physical graffiti and listen to Led Zepp. You know, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Right on. So wait, so did you grow up in the '80s, or how old are you? Well, I'm 62. 62. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. So yeah, you're a total 70s going into the 80s yeah. there yeah so, I, mean, I you know i still remember you know tall and Zip and and all those guys and you know, yeah. hearing, you know bad company in boston and all oh, those yeah. guys come up but i think in the 80s i really enjoyed listening to all them and you know new order i love that them as well you know they, I, I like a lot of that danceable stuff and i think it's because sure. a lot of the best times we had was in the club <laughs> <laughs> right absolutely i love all that stuff too man i i could listen to um you know all those those new age bands you know when they first came out i remember you know um i'm a little bit younger than you but i remember when devo first came out oh my god oh, yeah. remember that that was like just a yeah. craze was so yeah. cool all the synthesizer stuff and everything people are wearing oh, um, those red pots on their hands <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah the whole freedom of choice thing and with it yeah and, that's right yeah, yeah. great times yeah they're just deadpan looks on their faces and their videos is fantastic yeah well glenn i i really want to thank you for being on the podcast and you know um getting to know you and I oh my gosh I learned a lot just uh, from your knowledge of all the different species and your setup with rods and your flies and um, your history um, so when are we going fishing man yeah right when I get back from I'm going to go down and spend a week with Gary Bella on the 29th oh, are you? oh you are yeah oh, you tell- get COVID it up yeah, we got COVIDed out last year, but so Gary's able to get me back for a week. And, you know, Gary's a good friend. Yeah, so, man. Well, tell, yeah, tell I him to... I said hi, too, man. We, you know, he grew, oh, up, for sure. he grew up in Ojai, and um, he, was, he was real instrumental in helping me get started with uh, fly fishing back in the day, for sure. He's a good dude, yeah, man. Yeah, Gary's, Gary's good peeps, and, you know, the whole Lucero clan and everybody down there, uh he he's just he is the man i mean i've not fished with a better uh host than him everything just runs like clockwork and but more importantly the whole vibe that gary creates down there for his guests and um it's just really family oriented it's friendly and uh you know whether you're a veteran or a first timer he just makes you feel like you he's known you his whole life yes i I appreciate that for sure yeah so but yeah when I'm going to, I'll check in with you guys, you yeah. know, uh, I've been dying to get up there and fish your backyard, uh, for Definitely. a couple, three years now, you know, it's just, I hear about it and, and I'm hoping it's, it's on, you know, when I get back, but definitely want to come up for a couple of days. Yeah. Come up, man. I, I want to come down there and fish with you too. 
um, oh, and, for and, sure. you know, whatever, whatever species, it doesn't matter. Yeah, just, yeah. just go fishing, you know? Yeah, let's do it then. Right on. Well, thanks very much, Glenn. And, um, I will catch you guys all next time on the uh, Kern River Fly Shop podcast. Glenn, we'll catch up again. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity, Guy, and uh, you have a great rest of your week, buddy. All right, bud. Talk to you later. Okay. Catch you later. Bye.